0: The first reading today is from Isaiah chapter 5, Um, you can find it on page 556 of your Bibles. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a winepress as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. The second passage is from Mark chapter 11, which is on page 823, continuing on from the passage that we read last week. Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism. Was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, They feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the winepress and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At the harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit from the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away.
1: Good morning. Uh, let me ma- add my welcome to that of Pete's. My name is James Lewis, um, Senior Assistant Minister here and uh, again we're in Mark together in this uh, exciting tale of jesus life and so let me pray uh, as we do that together father god we thank you for this time together we thank you for your word and for uh this story of jesus uh, told to us by mark and so we ask this morning that you would help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our lord jesus christ that we would know him deeply and serve him all of our days we pray in jesus mighty name amen Uh, When I was at Bible College, uh, one of the things they used to do each year with all the students is they'd break us into teams and set us us off on mission to different churches uh, around Australia and even overseas. And uh, one year I was up at uh, Springwood, uh, Springwood Anglican, uh, and in the afternoon they sent us out one day to go and just leaflet and talk to people, knock on doors and invite them to church, let them know things were going on uh, for that week of mission. Uh, and so, me and one of the guys on the team had just had this lovely chat with a, a lovely old lady who was home during the week, and uh, we were just coming off uh, her property onto the footpath when this car screeched to a halt right next to us, and this enormous man, like a gorilla, just got out, and he was tats and a big moustache, and he said, ''What are you boys doing?'' And, and we just froze. And, and you know, instinct says it's fight or flight. Um, now, I think we'd agree that fight wasn't going to go so well, um, And I didn't jog as much as I do now, so flight wasn't going to work either. And so instinct was left behind and and rationality took over. And we just explained, uh, we're from Springwood Anglican Church. Uh, We're just letting people know about activities uh, that are going on over the week at church. And he said, oh, oh, that's okay. Um, I I live next door to Mavis and I just try and look out for her. So I saw a couple of guys coming out of a house, just want to check there's nothing wrong happening. So if you're from the church, that, that's fine. <laughs> and we, we had a little chat and then we moved on, which was great. Um, it was one of those moments where we very much felt under attack. Um, I, I don't know about you when that's been for you. Um, maybe it was with a client or a customer at work or your boss or a friend or family member. You, you felt under attack. Uh, you felt like your actions were being examined. Your motives were questioned. Your character was judged. How did you want to react in that moment? Did you want to lash out or run away? Did you want to blame others or withdraw? Did you want to rise up or fall apart? That's the kind of the issue that's going on here in Mark 11 and 12. Uh, The religious leaders, uh, Jesus in Jerusalem, as we saw last week, the religious leaders are are trying to attack Jesus, catch Jesus out, trip him up, trying to play him and, and use him. And there's two things that we're going to see happening today. Uh, There's the thing at the surface level uh, with this debate with the religious leaders. And then there's a kind of deeper level, this richer, more wonderful thing that Jesus would show us. Uh, And so we're going to do those two things. And we'll start first on the surface, playing games with the master. So verse 27, as we just read of Mark 11, they arrived again in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests and the teacher, the Lord and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you authority to do this? And that's been a big issue all along, hasn't it? As we've followed this story of Mark, of Jesus in Mark, they, the religious leaders have heard and seen Jesus do things that has upset them and troubled them. He's, he's cast out demons with a word. He's healed the sick with a word. And when he taught, it wasn't just rehashing the same old religious jargon. When Jesus taught and people heard him teach, it was like they could breathe again. The drought was over. He was telling their story. The author of the story of the world was telling their story. And then last week, we saw Jesus march into Jerusalem and behave like he owned the place because he did and does. And so perhaps the question that the religious leaders are asking here is a really good question. Who are you? Why are you doing these things? So maybe they're seeking. Maybe they want to know who Jesus is. So Jesus tests them. I will ask you this question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves. So you can imagine them getting a whiteboard out, uh, doing flow chart, tree diagram, sort of mapping out all the different options. And they say, well, if we say from heaven, he'll ask, well, why didn't you believe him? Because they rejected John. But if we say of human origin, well, the crowds will be angry because they respected John. Verse 33, They answer Jesus, we don't know. It's not we don't know, it's we're not willing to know. We don't care to know. And so Jesus says, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. If you're not sincere, Jesus says, if you're not really seeking, then I I can't help you. I'm not going to play your game. So then Jesus tells them this bigger story, the parable of the tenants we just read. And on the surface, it's very simple, isn't it? Very simple to work out. The major headlines are um, that God is the, the owner of the vineyard and the vineyard is his people, is the, is the world, the tenants are the religious leaders, uh, the servants are the prophets and his son is Jesus. And they kind of get that, the religious leaders, they, they want to arrest him because they knew that he had spoken the parable against them in verse 12, but they're still afraid of the crowd. And so it maybe looks like Jesus just stirring them, just putting the boot in because they're giving him a hard time. But really what Jesus is doing is what he does all the time. He's explaining their story. We saw in Isaiah 5 before that God has this deep love for his world. It's a picture of a a vineyard that he loves, that he's set up. And he entrusted the uh, the the religious leaders as, as tenants to care for the vineyard, to teach the truth to care for the weak, to humble the proud. But they rejected that. They taught lies. They trampled all over the weak, and they became the proud. And God sent his prophets, his servants again and again to call them back to him, but they rejected them. He was so patient, they rejected him. And so then he says, well, I'll send my son. Surely this act of patience and grace will soften their hearts. But no, they plot to kill Jesus. Do you see Jesus is telling their story? He's saying, you don't get it. For all your study, your religion, you just don't get it. You never get the grace and mercy and patience of God. And for that, they will kill him. And then it's the turn of the Sadducees, verse 18. So we didn't read this before, but skip ahead to verse 18 of Mark 12. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Now, when I was at uni, we learnt a really cringy dad joke way of remembering who the Sadducees are. Uh, we used to say, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, which is why they're sad, you see. It's terrible, isn't it? But you won't forget it. You won't forget it. They're sad, you see. Uh, the Sadducees are uh, a little bit like modern day atheists. <laughs> Mix having struggled with that one. <laughs> it is terrible, but you will remember it. Um, The Sadducees are a bit like modern-day atheists. They don't believe there's anything after death that we just sort of disappear. Uh, And the idea of a a resurrection, of resurrection to new life, was ridiculous to them. And and they've just heard Jesus take down their rivals, the Pharisees, and so they think, well, maybe we can get Jesus on our side, draw him into our team. And, And so they come with this question, verse 19. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children... The man must marry, marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. It's in the law of Moses. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died living no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven had any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? That's the problem they put. I remember really... Strange, strange moment at youth group years and years ago where a kid in the youth group put up his hand and asked the exact same question. It was weird because he'd obviously read it in the Bible but forgotten that he'd read it there. And so he asked the question like it was a real question for him. Very, very strange moment. Um, And then one of the youth leaders piped up and said, well, it doesn't matter. There'll be so many people in heaven. She'll be able to avoid all seven of them if she wants to. (laughs) Which is very, very funny. Um, A slightly silly answer to a very silly question. And that's the point of the religious leaders, isn't it? They're asking, they paint this scenario. And and it's meant to be silly because surely at some point someone along the line said, hang on, all seven dead? Like the fourth guy when it's his turn to marry, I'm not doing it. Like They're all dying. She's a black widow or something. She's killing them all. Like Someone pull this up. It's ridiculous. And that's the point that the Sadducees are making. That if the law of Moses and the resurrection can produce this ridiculous situation where a woman has seven husbands in heaven, then surely the whole thing is ridiculous. And they think they've got Jesus here. But then Jesus says, verse 24, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? That's a strong opening, isn't it? It's not, yeah, let me understand where you're coming from. I hear what you're saying. It's just you're in error. So so what does he mean? Well, verse 26 Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are badly mistaken. So when God said that in the book of Moses, the book of Exodus, that was hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, and God says, I am I am eternal. I am living. I am still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They live on. They are alive in the God of life. They are not dead forever. And the Sadducees miss this because they miss the power of God's word and they miss the power of the God to change all these things. So verse 25, When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. Jesus said the God who can raise people to life is a God who transforms our experience of relationships. That being single or divorced or widowed in heaven will not be the issue because our relationships will be so wonderfully transformed. Now, I know it's tempting perhaps if um, you're in a very happy marriage now to sort of squeeze your uh, spouse's hand and say, don't worry, honey, in heaven I'll still only have eyes for you. Um, But that misses the point because our relationships will be so wonderfully transformed. We can't conceive. Jesus says, will be like the angels it's amazing isn't it? get your head around that but the sadducees miss all this because they don't get the power of god and they don't know the truth of his word so do you see what's happened the religious leaders at different points have come they tried to trick jesus trap jesus try to use jesus play jesus and at every point jesus outshines them he is sharper he is smarter he is quicker He knows more. He sees more. He's more gracious, more patient. He outshines them at every point. But instead of humbling themselves and saying, well, maybe there's something about this Jesus. This is why he has this authority. They decide to kill him. And within a week, they'll have him strung up on a cross and in his grave. So the mood is very dark at this point, isn't it? Maybe there's a part of us that wants to grab the religious leaders and say, why? You can't treat the son of God like this. It's dark, it's deflating, it's discouraging. But as we move to this deeper level, this light shines on our situation. There's a scene that's just about to come in Mark that is drenched with grace and full of hope. So let's go there, the deeper level. It's this teacher of the law who comes to Jesus in verse 28. And he's not like the other religious leaders who come trying to trick Jesus. He has this question One of the teachers of the law came, heard them debating and noticing that Jesus had given a good answer. So there's something about Jesus. He asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? That's a great question. The Pharisees had worked out that there were some 613 laws and rules and commands in the law of Moses. Now, that's a lot, right? (laughs) 613 laws to obey. 613 ways to really mess up with god and so he comes and he says help us like what what's the core? like do we we can't do all this jesus help us what's the core but it's not just his question it's our question isn't it that sense of how how do i live a good life how do i work out right from wrong how do i please god in my life and we only have really two options We can go for the heavy rules. We can say, I'm going to go for rules and boundaries, tick all the boxes, square it all away. Or or we can say, no, I don't like rules. I'm going to be free. I'm going to do whatever suits me. I'm going to live to be true to myself. We can go those either two ways, but neither works. Because rules crush us and choke us and strangle us. And, and, And living without rules, well, you can't do that. That's chaos. That's called hell. So we can't, live with rules and we can't live without them and because we're made in the image of god we, we know we need a king but we're scared of a king because of our sin and the sin of others around us we, we can't live without a king and we're scared to live with a king so help us jesus what do we do and then jesus helps verse twenty-one, twenty-nine. 29 the most important one answered jesus is this Hear, O israel the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this: love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Do you see how Jesus helped? He hasn't said, "Yeah, look, there's a lot of rules, and you just got to toughen up and do it." And he doesn't say, "Yeah, there's a lot of rules, so just don't worry about it." No, he says that life is about love. And love is defined by relationship to God. Love is defined by worship of God. Love your neighbor. Love God with everything that you have. Now, many people in our culture today will say, look, the most important thing is just to try to do the loving thing in every situation. The most loving thing you can think of. But the problem with that is, how do you know what the most loving thing is? Do you see all the angles? Do you know everything? Can you see how every situation will play out? No, we're not God. And so Jesus says, life is about love, and love is defined by worship of God. That's how he's helped. Now, all that is very familiar to us. If we've been around churches, we've read the gospel before, we're, we're familiar with this comment, this question uh, that, that Jesus and the teacher of the law have. Uh, it's a bit like when I was growing up, uh, we lived near a train line. Uh, now, if you have grew up in the hills, you're saying, well, what's that? Um, Don't worry, it's coming. It's coming (laughs) very soon. Uh, So growing up and and trains you'd hear all the time. And so when people came to uh, stay with us, they'd say, how do you you sleep with the trains? And we'd say, what trains? You just get used to it. You don't notice it. It's a bit like this with Jesus' comment here. We're so used to hearing, we don't notice how amazing it is what he says. But the teacher of the law gets it. Verse 32. Well said, teacher, the man replied, you're right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength and and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Wow. Did did you see what he just said? A teacher of the law who taught you need to keep all the commandments, 613 commandments, and, and of course, if you 're really good, you might get to 80 percent, so just fill up the gaps with burnt offerings and sacrifices. that 's how you manage it, and he says, "No, I get that that's not going to cut it. Does 't matter how many burnt offerings and sacrifices, how a be I won 't I won't get there. I can 't do it. It 's not enough. And Jesus says to him something that he's never said to anyone in all of Mark. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Wow. You're not far from the kingdom of God because you see that you can't do it. That you're powerless. That that the only way to be free is not to try and free yourself. The only way to find a love beyond imagination is, is to recognize that you can't love like you should. It's an amazing conversation. But then Jesus does this thing that's very strange. Actually, it's what he doesn't do that's strange. He doesn't give the next step for this guy. You're not far. Here's the next step. He doesn't say, you're not far. So come to a newcomer's morning tea and sign up for Christian Explored and join a community group. That's the next step. Seriously, he doesn't give the next step, does he? He doesn't say, you've got to receive the grace of God. You've got to trust in me. He doesn't give the next step why well i think jesus doesn't give the next step because he wants us to see that he took the step for us he doesn't give the answer because he wants us to see that he is the answer because look what he does in our next and final scene jesus asks the questions now verse 35 while jesus was teaching in the temple courts he asked why did the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? Why did they say that? Because everyone knew it. That was, it was prophesied and planned that the, the Messiah would be a descendant of David. And they also knew that in the ancient world, the previous generations were greater than the current. They, they revered and looked up to the previous generations. We have it the other way around in our culture. We exalt youth and we sideline aged. But in the ancient world, they revered and looked up to the previous generations, and so David was the ideal king, and everyone who came after him would be lesser. So the Messiah, when he came, he would look up to David, he would call David Lord. And we kind of get that. that makes sense of that. I mean, dads, how many of you call your kids Lord? Anyone? I mean, they might behave like their Lord of the home at times. But it's a developmental phase. But they won't call them Lord. Everyone gets that the greater is earlier. But then Jesus says, verse 36, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit in the Psalms, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? David calls the Messiah Lord. How is that possible? It's only possible if the Messiah is not just just a human descendant of David, but the son of God. If Jesus is the son of God. Do you see what's happened today? The religious leaders have come with their questions, their challenges, their tricks, but they've got it all wrong. They don't need answers. They need to see that Jesus is the answer. I've seen this happen in Christian Explored um, when I've run it in the past. That at the beginning of the course, we say, Look, what's the big question? If you could ask God one question, what would it be? And people kind of write down a whole range of questions. It might be about God's plan for their life, or um, uh, rules and religion, or it might be about suffering and evil in the world. And and, and so you write that down, and then you you start the course. And you start reading Mark, start getting to know Jesus. And then partway in, we used to pause and we'd ask, has that question been answered for you? And so often people would say, well, sort of, but I don't really care as much now. It wasn't that it wasn't an the question was no longer important. It wasn't that they just learnt blind faith, but as they got to know Jesus, they'd seen that the questions are less important, that they have a, a lesser place as you get to know Jesus. It just didn't matter as much anymore. See, we come with our questions, our struggles, our skepticism, and, and that's okay. Uh, Norwest is a, is a wonderfully safe place to do that. And there are books and resources that we can read. Christianity is wonderfully defensible, rational, logical. But here's the thing. People very often say, I need that watertight proof before I can believe. I need that watertight answer before I can believe. But God doesn't give us the watertight proof. He gives us the watertight person that's why jesus doesn't give an answer to the teacher of the law because the answer all along all through mark has been jesus is the answer the leaders have tried to trick jesus but they all are silenced and as we read on in the coming weeks we'll see the disciples abandon jesus until it will just be jesus alone on a cross dying for our sins and finally we have a king who's safe Neil and uh, Megan came to church uh, looking for baptism for their daughter. Uh, And they wanted to sort of tick the boxes and and do that. Uh, And we said, well, it'd be great to uh, do Christian Explored so you understand what promises you're making and so on. And and so I would meet with them every Sunday afternoon. We'd have lunch together and uh, do Christian Explored. And and I remember two-thirds of the way into the course. I remember the, the day. I remember what we had for lunch. I remember the light coming into the room. I remember the layout of the room when they prayed, and put their trust in Jesus. It was amazing. Wonderful. And so as we headed towards baptism and and they came up on stage like we do here and we asked, why are you bringing your daughter for baptism today? Neil said this, I see that Jesus shines. And I know that if Jesus doesn't shine in, in our lives, then there'd be no point getting Lara baptized. And so we're getting Lara baptized because we want Jesus to shine in her life. We want her to grow up following Jesus. Wow. That's it, isn't it? It's that wonderfully simple. So friends, here's the question to finish. Does Jesus shine for you? Are you always looking for the perfect answer to an endless list of questions, that watertight proof? Or do you see that Jesus is the watertight person? Jesus is the answer. Let's pray together. Lord and God, we thank you so much for Jesus. We're just amazed and astonished as we've read today, just in the face of such opposition and the religious leaders trying to catch him out and trick him that he shone. He's spectacular. His ability to know and see the truth and know their hearts and know the answer. And yet, Lord, we know it wasn't just a battle of wits. Because it's not about getting the right answers to all our questions, but seeing that Jesus is the answer. We thank you for that teacher of the law who saw so much, who was so close to the kingdom, because he knew that he couldn't do it himself. And thank you that Jesus took that step for us, that Jesus died in our place and for our sins, that he is the answer. He is the water type person. Lord, we ask for each of us here today that our hope and our trust and our joy would definitely and fully and completely be in Jesus. Will you help us with those times where we we know that's not true and we struggle with it in the midst of life? Will you be patient with us and continue to work on us that our joy would definitely be in Jesus? We pray this in his mighty name.